And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Dick Durbin when he was a 33-year-old candidate for lieutenant governor in Illinois in 1978. Uh, He got the job because nobody else wanted it. It was on a doomsday mission uh, in that particular election. Uh, But ultimately, he ended up in Congress in the United States Senate, where he's become one of the most reliable, progressive voices and a familiar figure uh, on national television and the Senate floor, uh, jousting uh, on the major issues of the day. Uh, Dick and I also share a mentor in the late Senator Paul Simon, and he shares some of those qualities that Paul had of integrity and just homespun common sense. Uh, So I really enjoyed sitting down with him the other day at the IOP. Dick Durbin, I've known you for a very long time. In fact, when I met you, you were I was a young reporter, and you were a 33-year-old candidate for lieutenant governor back in 1978, um, and uh, that was one of several races. It was an impossible race, which is why you got to be the candidate for lieutenant governor, because nobody else would line up for it, um, and you went through a few uh Losses before you, uh, before you ended up in Congress. Well, what? Tell me about your sort of your early experiences that uh, led you into public office. By accident, I became an intern in the office of U.S. Senator Paul Douglas in Washington. What do you mean by accident? You just opened the wrong door? Or? No, my uh, my roommate was from Chicago. And John Stucker was his name. And he saw this notice on the bulletin board to be uh, interns needed office of U.S. Senator. Where were you guys? Georgetown Uh School of Foreign Service, two years ahead of Clinton. And so he saw this thing about being an intern. He went to it and came back to our apartment and said, man, this is the coolest thing in the world. I'm in the old Senate office building, and I saw Bobby Kennedy and Teddy Kennedy and Wayne Morris and Jake Javits. And I said, do they need another intern? He asked him, and he said, we don't get any downstate Democrats. Of course we'll take you. I was from East St. Louis. So I worked for Paul Douglas, worked on his campaign when he lost against Percy in 66, and met a state senator named Paul Simon, uh, who was campaigning for Paul Douglas. I've heard of that guy. I uh, end up graduating law school. My first job is with Simon in uh, Springfield. I bring my wife, baby, another child on the way. Uh, we settle in Springfield. I become parliamentarian of the United States Senate. Didn't have a clue. There's no course in that <laughs> in law school. And I learned the job and then looked at the state senators and I thought, I could do this. So I worked up the courage. Ran for state senator, 76, lost. Ran for lieutenant governor, 78, lost. Simon said, run as a Kennedy delegate in 1980, lost. And the last try, that last try Loretta would let me uh, consider, (laughs) was a race for Congress in uh, 1982. Great year for Democrats. Over 50 new Democratic House members. Midterm after Reagan got elected. Yeah, it was midterm Reagan. Bad economy. And I beat a 22-year incumbent named Paul Finley, who now has become a close friend of mine, a wonderful guy. Uh, And I look back on it and think, I'd have voted for this cat if I hadn't run against him. And so I ended up being elected. Why did you 
Talk a little bit about your family. I mean, why did public service appeal to you? You're a smart guy. You could go out there and uh, make a make a good living. You had a you have a law degree. Why why why, why politics? Why public service? You know, I, th- I think as in most things in life, there are people who inspire you. Paul Douglas inspired me. Uh, I, I thought so highly of him. Uh, we mean, should talk a little about him because I don't know if a lot of folks. Him, Paul uh, Douglas is well back yeah, in history. Nineteen forty-eight. He was an economist here at the University of Chicago. He was, he was. and the best part of the story is uh, that that Douglas uh, was uh, senator from forty-eight to sixty-six, and uh, he. My favorite story is he ran for the Senate and lost in the primary, Democratic primary, in nineteen forty-two. He was a faculty member here at the member University of, the city of Chicago, council. member of the city council. And the day Pain after, in the neck to the Democratic machine. He was the only independent on right. the city council in those days. The day after uh, uh, he lost the Democratic Senate primary in 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps for World War II. He was 50. 50 years old. Yeah. Went through basic training at Paris Island. He was a Ph.D. in economics. They tried to stick him in the See, war department. See, I, I will say this. Being the lone independent in the city council prepares you for boot camp That's at right. Paris Island. So. He used to talk about preparing to go to Paris Island, doing laps here at University of Chicago at the stadium, or at their football field. He goes into combat, insists on going into combat, gets terrible, uh, terrible wound, lost the use of his left arm, much like Bob Dole. Came back, run for the Senate, 1948. Well, the story, of course, is that he wanted to run for governor, and a fellow named Adlai Stevenson wanted to run for the Senate. Uh, Jack Harvey, who was the chairman of the uh, Democratic Party here, didn't think they could trust Douglas as governor. That's right. So they ran him for the Senate and Stevenson for governor, and they both won. So I'm uh, his intern. He had a practice in his office that he signed every letter that went out. Can you imagine? We get 10,000 letters and emails a week now, but in those days, not as many. And they were all typed answers. So at 5 o'clock every night, they would stack up all of the letters for him to sign. He has one arm. He needs help. An intern sits next to him. So they said, Durbin, get in there, sit next to him, pull the letters as he signs them, and try not to breathe. So I was sitting there in you know mortal fear that I would disrupt this great man's thought patterns. And... He stops in the middle of signing his letters and says, so you're Dick Durbin from East St. Louis, Illinois. And I thought, nobody in the world's ever called me Dick Durbin. It's Rich, it's Durb, it's all these things, never called. And I think, I can't start off by correcting him. (laughs) The next thing, his personal secretary, Jane Inger, walks in and he says, Jane, have you met Dick Durbin? And I'm thinking, (laughs) this hole is getting deeper. So it became my political nom de plume, and I loved him. He inspired me. He was such an honest, ethical man, a real liberal. And um, I think I started at least speculating that maybe I could get involved in government. I'd been in the School of Foreign Service at that point. And your, your, your family w- was an immigrant family? My mother was an immigrant from Lithuania, brought here at the age of two. Father's family goes back before the Revolutionary War. And my mother came, uh, as I mentioned, from Lithuania, grew up in East St. Louis. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, uh, when you landed at Baltimore, gave you two destinations, Chicago and St. Louis. She took the St. Louis route for the Lithuanians instead of coming up here where most of the Lithuanians came to. And that's why I ended up on the other end of the state growing up. 
Uh, my father and mother both had eighth grade educations, worked for railroads, and um, we had a good life. You know, I thought it was a, I couldn't ask for more as a kid, you know. Uh, but lucky for me, uh, it, it ended up with my being able to go to college. Mm-hmm. And what, um, uh, so you, you, after your service with Douglas and, and, and Simon, uh, in the state senate, you went. You went to Congress. Um, uh, we should well, let me f- stop for a second and talk a little bit about Paul Simon because he was the guy who got me into politics as well. Um, how much of an influence was he on you? More than any other person, and he was my mentor. Doug, Douglas, we, my inspiration. Yeah, uh, Simon, my mentor. And the nice thing about Paul was. Um, Whenever I'd lose, he'd pick me up, dust me off, and say, you know, we'll, we'll look for another chance. Yeah, apparently he had a lot of practice, too. He did, I did have a lot of <laughs> practice at it. And endorsed me, supported me, and got me moving. Gave me some basic rules. I remember some things he said. Some of them um, many people would disagree with. But he said there are two things you've got to do in public life. You've got to be honest, and you've got to help the helpless. Those were the two things that guided him. And so he got into this income and net worth disclosure thing, which I had to sign up for fresh out of law school when I went to work for him when he was lieutenant governor. Think of the embarrassment of a negative net worth that you then put into a press release. Poor Loretta. I mean, she was just almost in tears. But with well, all that, since Paul was a role model as well, because he never made too much. Never money. made much. Drove an old Chevy most of the time. But you know, student loans and the rest. But I've done it ever since. Every year, full disclosure, income, net worth, and you know, folks, as Paul used to say, they can question your judgment on an issue. Just don't have them question your honesty on an issue. So I've always felt that that was uh, kind of an inoculation against some of the terrible things that have happened in Illinois politics. I happened to start off with a fellow who was uh, pretty clean, very clean, yeah. and very honest. Yeah. You know, Paul got me out of the newspaper business, and I went to work for him because I thought, here's a guy who I know I'm not going to wake up one morning, pick up the newspaper, and be embarrassed by him. I knew that he would always make me proud, that he would always conduct himself with honor, and he and he always did. But the thing that I most appreciated about him, you know, for for those of you, many of you probably don't know of uh, Paul Simon, or at least the one who didn't sing with Art Garfunkel. But Paul Simon was a guy who dropped out of college, bought a little newspaper in downstate Illinois, used it to crusade against a crime syndicate down there, ran against them, got elected to the legislature from deep southern Illinois at a early. Uh, age and and the thing that I most appreciate about him is that he uh, he campaigned for civil rights and oh, yeah. uh, which was not as you can attest not easy to do uh, when you were from Southern Illinois uh, at that time and you know close closer to the, the South than to Chicago uh, and um, you know I I guess I always appreciate people who take on fights like that and put the, themselves at risk politically because they think that's what their job is is to do. He really stood out. He came to the Illinois House of Representatives when he was elected there, teamed up with Abner Mikva, Tony Scariano, Bob Mann, a group of Yeah, the liberals, Kosher Nostra. The Kosher Nostra, as they yes. called it. And Paul then met his um, future wife, Jean Simon, who was Jean Hurley, a state representative from the Evanston area. I think they were the only, they were uh, certainly, he was the only one from downstate who listed in his blue book biography in Illinois that he was a member of the NAACP. Yeah. As you said, he really was 
you know, stuck his neck out early in his political life for things he believed in, inspired by his father, who was a Lutheran minister, who stood up for the uh, Japanese Americans who were interred during World War II. Paul told that story so many times, I knew that stuck with him. He um, uh, he was a guy who, um, uh, despite taking these positions, was the uh, object of affection among colleagues. He'd, he'd campaigned for political reform and still had relationships with people in Chicago and the Democratic organization. He uh, he won when I worked for him in 1984 uh, when he ran for the Senate in a very bad year, Reagan landslide year against an incumbent. He uh, he carried Southern Illinois, uh, and he got 25% of the self-described uh, conservative voters in the state, even though he was an avowed liberal, because they understood that he was a man of integrity, and even if they didn't agree with him, they thought he was a decent person and wanted to be represented by him. Uh, I thought that said a lot about him. That, uh, as well as he was a fiscal conservative yes. when it came to it. He and I parted ways on the balanced budget constitutional amendment. Well, the little secret about Paul, which I think got him into trouble in the presidential races, he was for a balanced budget, but he was also for uh, uh, taxes that would support a balanced yes. budget. Yes, yes. And so, uh, you know, he wasn't for the sort of fat-free uh, kind of variety of the proposal where you just cut the hell out of everything and— uh, well, and if you recall, when he ran in the Democratic primary for governor in 1972 uh, against Dan Walker and lost, uh, he got in trouble because he, he said supported as much. the income tax. He talked about increasing the income tax for our schools around the state. It was an honest answer, but it cost him. So, what did you learn from that, and how has it impacted on your career? You've taken some. You were one of the handful of people who opposed the war in Iraq. You've taken some tough votes. Uh, in your time, do you think about Paul, the, Paul, the two Pauls, when do. you do those things? You know, the gospel, political gospel according to the, the Saints Paul. And <laughs> uh, I would say that each of them, in their own way, uh, was willing to step out and take some heat on issues. Uh, for Douglas, uh, he took on the banks. You know, when it came to truth and lending, that was one of his passions. Uh, and he didn't have a chance. He never passed it during his career, 18 years in the Senate. Uh, for Paul Simon, here he was in southern Illinois as a congressman defending the sale of the Panama Canal, you know, and the bailout of New York City. None of those things were had any appeal whatsoever down there. If anything, they cost him votes. But you know, they had an approach to this, David, which I think, I believe, and that is even if you're going to disagree with the majority, do it in an honest, forthright way. Don't fudge around with your answers. Tell them exactly where you stand and why. And there'll be some who'll walk away and never come back, but a lot of them who'll stick around and say, you know, I don't agree with that uh, Simon on that issue. But he was at least honest with me. He gave me a straight answer. And that, to me, has been a motivating force. Try to educate the voters. At least let them know that you're dealing with these issues in an honest fashion. What was the toughest vote that you've cast? You've been there now. Uh, 35 years. What's the toughest vote you I can? always say that votes on going to war are the toughest votes. You lie awake at night. You think people are going to die because of this vote. Not just the enemy, but our own people are going to die because of it. Keeps you up late at night. The Iraq vote was one of those. It was just a few weeks before um, my reelect. I didn't have a tough race that year. But it was a time when you had to think twice about it. Public sentiment was overwhelmingly in favor of the invasion of Iraq. And I decided to join uh, 22 others uh, in voting against that war. 
I, I knew at the time it was the right thing to do, but I didn't know if I was pushing it too far at the last minute in a campaign. And um, uh, history uh, has borne out your judgment, at least. I would. I think most Americans would agree with that at that point. Well, there are, I haven't found any of the 23 of us who voted against it who said we wish we had it to do over again. But I've certainly run into a lot of the 67 who voted for it who wishes they could vote again. It was the biggest single foreign policy mistake of my lifetime, maybe of modern times, and we're paying for it today. Um, how, is, how have uh, politics changed in the, and how has the Congress changed? You know, you guys are, there are probably, you know, there's, there's some diseases that are probably less popular than Congress and <laughs> some uh, uh, other scourges, but Congress is trading pretty low right now. And our politics, as the president addressed in the State of the Union speech, is very, uh, is very poisoned. Um, what happened over the course of those years? And how different is it today than well, when you it, arrived? I can remember when Paul Simon left. He served 12 years and said, I'm sick and tired of raising money. And he wouldn't, if he were alive today, he wouldn't believe where we are. We're now living in a world, uh, because of Citizens United, where vast amounts of money are being spent. And in the super PAC world, which is separate and dark and secret, uh, a lot of money is being spent. We don't know where it's coming from. If you notice, there are, as we speak here, 11 or 12 candidates, Republican candidates for president. Virtually everyone still in the running has some benefactor, some very rich person. Oligarchs pushing money their way so they can stay in the running. We have decentralized politics from political parties into these oligarchs, as you described them, uh, who really pick their favorite candidates and, and push them forward. On the state scene here, I mean, we take a look around and say we have a governor who's, a, fortunately for him, a very wealthy man, and he can spend a lot of his own money. Uh, he has friends with even more money. Governor Rauner here in Illinois. Yes, and the question is whether or not uh, you know they will spend it in this next race. And as I say, the mere mortals in politics look around and say, how do we keep up with this? Uh, that's one major change. The second major change is one that I'm struggling to understand. Uh, for the State of the Union address, my press secretary came in and said, we need for you to do a Snapchat. I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. But it turns out to be a 10-second video literally 10 second video. I went 11 seconds. They said, we have to do it over again. But the communication systems are kind of changing things. We're seeing with the uh, emails and internet, this low bore, small contributions, which can make a campaign, ask Bernie Sanders. Right. At the same time, we're seeing a communications network that goes beyond the traditional. When I started, can you get a news adjacency for your television ad? Can you put your television ad on Thursday night, the biggest night of the week, on the networks? That's not so much the case. Right. It's now a question of, tell me about your Facebook page. What are you tweeting on a regular basis? How many followers do you have? Whatever a Snapchat is, are you doing it? <laughs> all, the, all these things have created a new social media. And I'm wondering, at the end of the day, if we have democratized, decentralized to the point where raising money and delivering a message is at least attainable, but whether the massive amounts that can be spent on campaigns by those who have these benefactors won't overwhelm it. Do you uh, think, how, how profoundly is policy affected uh, in the Senate and the Congress uh, by the leverage that this, uh, these big dollar donors have? Dramatically, dramatically. 
I, and this sounds partisan, I'll say it anyway. I think my friends, and I do have friends, on the Republican side of the aisle are more vulnerable than Democrats because the Tea Party sits in waiting. And if they uh, are some other group feels that they've wandered off of the party doctrine, uh, they'll take them on in a primary. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, you know, I'm sorry, you know, Dick, I can't join you on this issue here in the Senate. Uh, it's a tax issue, you know, no matter what it is, if the word tax is in it. So they've reached a point now where it's really hurt them. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what about the comedy with a T uh, in the Congress, the, the sense of, you say, I do have friends on the Republican side as if you're sharing a uh, secret with me. And they're pro- and those Republicans probably would prefer you keep it a secret that you're a friend of theirs. How That's not the way it was when you got no. to Washington. No, and there were progressive Republicans. John Chafee of Rhode Island, good example. I uh, look back at, at uh, Olympia Snow. Susan Collins still there and still hanging in there, thank goodness, from the state of Maine. But in terms of... Uh, Arlen inspector in terms of Republicans that you could turn to and work with to get solutions, fewer and fewer of those are available. And it means that many things are just blatantly bipartisan. Now, there's an exception. Let me give you one. The president kicked off a State of the Union address the other night talking about there's some things we can do this year. The first thing he said was criminal justice reform. And this is a bill that I introduced with Mike Lee, a Tea Party Republican of Utah, and now have joined forces with Chuck Grassley, conservative Republican of Iowa, that we're pushing forward that's going to change mandatory minimum federal sentences to reduce prison populations and particularly to give those guilty of drug offenses that don't involve a gun, a gang, or violence a chance to have uh, less time in prison. So things do break through. And what an alliance we have. It isn't just Grassley, Cornyn, Durbin, and and Leahy. This is supported by the civil rights community and by the Koch brothers. Go figure. Yeah, we had uh, Mark Holden from the Koch brothers, who's their point person on this uh, issue here, talking about that quite passionately, the need for criminal justice reform. What do you make of the the, uh, Democratic race for president? And uh, why is Bernie Sanders doing as well as he's doing? I'm supporting Hillary. I endorsed her. And I believe she will be our nominee and elected president. Uh, But Bernie Sanders can be explained in a few words. The speech that you hear Bernie Sanders giving on the stump in every stop in America is the same exact speech that he has given in the Senate Democratic Caucus lunch for the last several years. I could give this speech. (laughs) And I say that uh, to, to really point to the authenticity and credibility of this man when it comes to this issue of economic justice. He believes it to his core. And when do you I do, too. And I think we should. Uh, and I think he is moving the debate, the national debate, and certainly the Democratic debate in the direction of making this an important part of our message to voters. And it should be in this election year. You know Iowa on a firsthand basis yes. with Paul, with Barack, right. uh, and other experiences right. you've had. You know what it takes to get people to march out in five-degree weather into that high school. Uh, and with, with their neighbors. With their neighbors. And I remember going in 88 when I was with you with Paul Simon and going to one of these schools. And as you walked in the door, they said, Republicans in a cafeteria, Democrats in a gymnasium. And you think, this is the democratic process? And then, all right, those for Simon, get over in the corner there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's actually kind of 
it's kind of quaint. It's it is kind of, quaint, yeah. it, but it brings out some real true believers. Mm-hmm. You get you get the party faithful in both parties coming out there, and I think that Bernie is going to have his troops show up there, and Hillary's going to do her best to beat him. But it could be close, and he could end up winning that. Maybe even his neighboring state of New Hampshire. And what do you think that means if he wins the first? Well, I, th- I think it, it'll give her pause. It probably will come back as a reminder of what happened eight years ago. I, think I said she, to someone that Iowa to Hillary is like Chinatown was to Jake Giddis. That's know, right. <laughs> bad memories. Bad memories. Yeah. But I think she's going to catch her stride, uh, and I think she will by the 1st of March. And I expect her to be the nominee. Do you think she's handling Bernie the right way? Well, uh, right now, it's hand-to-hand combat in Iowa, and I don't think that's going to work. Uh, if anything, it's going to inspire his supporters uh, to be sure and vote and bring out some people with him. But uh, I, I know the temptation when you think, for goodness sakes, if we can just turn a couple percent here, you know, we could end up being the nominal winners of this. Uh, and it could make a difference. So on, on a day-to-day basis, you know this better than I do. You know, the strategists, campaign strategists, are trying to figure out all the news cycles and how to move uh, a sliver of the electorate. Uh, would you advise her to be measured in her dealings with Bernie? I think she needs to take care. I, I, I'll t- I'm encouraged by the fact that when I talk to the Sanders voters and say, okay, if it isn't Bernie, oh, we're all for Hillary. I hear that. Uh, I hope she doesn't burn any of those bridges. We need them. We need the party unified when it's all over. What about on the Republican side? Are you surprised that Donald Trump is doing as well as he's doing? It is stunning to think that Trump and Cruz command more than half of the Republican uh, presidential voters at this point. Do you share the uh, – I always say that Ted Cruz – is the one guy who can unify Washington because both Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, don't like him. Are you surprised that he's doing as well as he's doing? He's not held in high esteem among uh, your crowd over there in the Senate. What an understatement. He uh, he has one friend in the Senate, uh, Mike Lee of Utah. I mean, uh, just lay the cards on the table. Uh, And beyond that, uh, the Republican Senate caucus, and I talk to him regularly, has no use for him. He closed down the government in what they thought was a boneheaded stunt where he's reading Dr. Seuss, and people were saying, why did he close down the government? And And sully Dr. Seuss, but that's another question. And he called uh, Mitch McConnell a liar on the floor of the Senate, his his own Republican leader. Uh, So he doesn't have a lot of friends. a lot of people, George Herbert Walker Bush. But he, he wears that as an emblem of, of Really, of and pride. I think that's why he's appealing to some. Uh, but in the end, I worry, because I used to sit uh, in a subcommittee on Constitution, Human Rights, and Civil Rights, which I chaired. He was my ranking Republican and literally sat right next to me, chair against chair. And so I watched this guy as he, uh, the senator, as he explained his positions on issues. And I watched, he's not dumb by any means. How he caref- and he's running a very clever campaign. Carefully weaves, you know, his own philosophy and rips his opponents to shreds, which he's tried to do to me a few times. Trump is another thing. I, it, it's hard to explain that this kind of demagogue could be this popular for so long in this campaign. When you think of the things that he has said that would have disqualified any other candidate for president and gets by with it, it's an incredible testimony. But, Dick, you know, as I uh, uh, travel around, um, and, you know, I, I you, there are a whole bunch of people in this country. His base is, like, non-college educated, uh, primarily white uh, voters. 
at a time when the economy's changed dramatically. Lots of people feel like they've been disadvantaged in those changes. Uh, they also feel as if the elites kind of disdain them. It's kind of Sarah, we saw that constituency with Sarah Palin. She really was much more authentically of that uh, constituency. Isn't he sort of, I mean, he's a marketer. I always say Donald Trump's the guy who says, what will it take to get you in that car? Yeah. And he's found what it took, and they've, he's got them in his car by by sort of singing that siren song of immigration. You know, it's the immigrants, it's the refugees, it's trade, it's the outside, you know, the nativism that we've seen not just here but in other countries. Philip, uh, you may remember his name, wrote an article in the Washington Post either today or yesterday. Phil Rucker. And he basically said, here's why uh, I'm not going to vote uh, for... Oh, a fellow did. I'm you know, sorry. That he's yeah. not going to vote for uh, Trump uh, if he's the nominee, said, I'm not going to vote. That, I think, is what happened in 1964 with Goldwater, when the base of the Republican Party said, we don't agree with this man's views, we're just staying home. So I wonder if that will happen here. It's too, a little too early to Well, tell. I had a conversation with uh, Stuart Stevens right here, the Republican consultant who was Reagan's consultant, who said he would not uh, vote for, uh, for Donald Trump if he were the Republican. Then Governor Nikki Haley comes out in the answer to the State of the Union and basically said, we don't have a place for these angry voices in the Republican Party. So they are concerned and rightly should be concerned. Because when you when you put together the Republican strategy and say, can they really go after Planned Parenthood, which is so popular with women across America, and take positions on issues, economic issues that are critically important to, to women who are trying to raise a family by themselves, can they really go after all of the Hispanics and the especially Mexicans, and say we're going to write off this group. They lost the Asians, incidentally, when they went after immigrants in the last right. presidential election. Right, three to one. Uh, can, can they really do all of these things that test us in terms of our basic values and establish a winning presidential coalition? They may prove that their message disqualifies themselves from the presidency in the 21st century, at least this stage. Or it could be that um, Agile, as uh, at least Trump is in terms of shifting positions over time that once the nomination is secured he'll he'll uh, shift off of some of those positions boy that's hard to pull off yeah i know but i i, I thought he would be out of the race by now so i'm not going to underestimate well let's see now we're as we as we put this program together no votes have been counted so we'll see what actually yeah happens. yeah no we will see up. we will see we will see as we uh wrap up i want to talk a little bit about our mutual friend uh, the president uh I was always very appreciative when he got nominated for the U.S. Senate here in Illinois that you really uh, embraced him and mentored him uh, as he was running and when he entered the Senate. It couldn't have been – now, you were coming into a leadership position, probably eased this. But generally, the history of these things is the senior senator is not always all that happy to see some glistening star arrive of their own party – uh, and get a boatload of attention. Uh, that wasn't a tension between the two of you, though. Um, tell me about your relationship with Barack Obama. I think the first thing I noticed was this man had written a popular book, an autobiography. And I thought to myself, how many state senators across America have written a bestseller 
autobiography? Answer one, Barack Obama. Right. Yeah, wrote it when he was 33. Wanted to get his autobiography out of the way so he could get on <laughs> with the rest of his life. So Loretta and I invited, invited him and Michelle to dinner. Uh, they might have had uh, one child at the time, but they were just newly married. I can remember seeing him down uh, when I was new to the Senate or campaigning for the Senate, pushing a stroller down by Lake Michigan. So we go that far back. Uh, we became friends. There was a point in his career when he was a state senator, and uh, he ran unsuccessfully for Congress against Bobby Rush in the Democratic primary. Unsuccessfully is, is generous. He lost by 30 points. Well, that's very unsuccessful. <laughs> and he, he called me afterwards, and he basically said to me, um, I've got a lot of offers to do a lot of other things with my life. What do you think? Should I stick around this thing? I mean, I, I, I don't want to keep commuting to Springfield for the rest of my life. And I said, you know, it's a funny business, twists and turns, and opportunities are going to emerge, and don't give up on it. You know, and I don't know what impression that made on him. He stuck around four years later. Fitzgerald, Peter Fitzgerald, retires as senator from uh, Illinois. Illinois senator, uh, and Barack uh, runs for that. Uh, and I remember you played a major role in uh, Barack's speech to the Democratic Convention uh, in Boston. And I introduced him. It was a famous introduction. People asked me for copies yes. all the time. That's what people remember most about that speech, actually. I felt bad for Barack about what, that. What was interesting was you know that the convention floor is going to go crazy. People have spent a lot of their personal money to go out there and wear funny hats, buttons, and go crazy. But you wondered what will happen afterwards. Well, we know what happened afterwards. There was this dramatic reaction. He came back within 24 hours. He was on a bus headed to northern Illinois, and I was following him around. And I couldn't believe the crowds. And I thought something amazing has just happened here. So you ask, why did I pick this man out? And how did I manage to tame my political ego to support him? He was a special person, and I could see it. And I, I, that's why I encouraged him to run you know, and said to him, uh, um, for president, uh, for president, uh, about a, a year and a half before the Iowa caucus said to him, uh, you've got to do this. You're young enough. If it doesn't work, you'll get another chance. But you have an appeal, which is important. And you and Hillary together, if you can combine your forces after this process, we can win the presidency. But I'll support you. So I endorsed him. I was the first senator to endorse him for 14 months. I was the only senator who endorsed him. Uh, and then others joined. But I've never, I've disagreed with him, but I've never been disappointed by him. I believe he is genuine and honest. His values are values that I share and hope will be part of our country for a long time. You know, time I was ago. sitting on the set at CNN during the State of the Union uh, the other night, and there was a lot of talk uh, be before and after about what his legacy would be because he's in the final year and now's the time that discussion goes on. But it's very hard sometimes to make those judgments uh, in the way that history will. How do you think history uh will remember him as, as, as president of the United States? For many things. The first African-American president of the United States, taking his oath of office on Abraham Lincoln's Bible. That, to me, was an historic moment, which this country desperately needed and will continue to need similar moments like it in the future. I have always admired, and I think you too uh, have admired, his patience. I look at the political assaults that he weathers and think, I would have blown my top He's calm. He's patient. And I think that steady hand, the no drama Obama uh, style, has been an important part of his presidency. He's tackled some of the toughest issues, not only of his generation, but before, 
whether we're talking about uh, providing health insurance for people or cleaning up Wall Street after the worst recession in modern times. These things, to me, will be a lasting mark. There are so many others that uh, we don't see now but we'll find over time are part of that Obama legacy. You talk about his... uh his patience in the face of opposition. How much do you th- of that opposition do you think was rooted in the fact that he was the first black president? I think it was part of it. He might deny that, but and he, he kind of whenever he's asked tries to play that down. But I think it was part of it. And there were people who opposed him from the start because he was the Democratic president. But this uh, this became a part of the equation of opposition on his uh, against him. Do you see it? I mean, do you see it in your colleagues? Uh, they don't speak openly about you know any of those things, but uh, I sense the reactions to him are disrespectful. In uh, in many respects, people calling him a liar at the State of the Union address, uh, that sort of thing. I've never quite seen anything like that before. Do you? How much do you think that he? Uh, you hear your you hear your colleagues talk about his inability to work with Congress, and I know that the Republican uh, strategy, and I think Senator McConnell said this was basically one of non cooperation. But what about among your own colleagues who also grouse from time to time that he's too detached? Is that a a fair uh, criticism? Many of them compare him to Bill Clinton. And that's unfair. Bill Clinton is sui generis. He is just one political personality that is truly unique. Uh, And he was so outgoing and so social to an extreme. I mean, I I sit here with some embarrassment and tell you that I've turned down at least three or four invitations to play golf with President Clinton when he was president. I just got tired of him. Didn't want to take his money? No. (laughs) Well, I'm not that good at it, but he just called like every other week. And I thought, am I the only person, (laughs) you know, and I, but he was very garrulous, very social to a fault. And Barack has a different style. He's raising a family with small children and doing it extremely well. And I think he really focuses more on that family time and personal time, private time. But he does reach out. And members of Congress should be fair in in acknowledging that. I uh, always felt uh, that, and I wrote about this in in my book, that he believes, as we've discussed uh, about others, and that uh, public service is really a calling, that there are things worse than losing an election, and that when the opportunity to make big change comes, that you ought to seize it. I left the caucus after he came to talk to you guys about health care, and he said, what are they all so scared of? I said, well, I think they're scared of losing their jobs. And he said, well, what's the point of being up here for 30 years if you don't do anything? And and I said, look, I think they'd love to do good things, but if it's a choice between that and being up here for 30 years, most of them would say, I'll take the 30 years. Now, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think he was a little – he's not entirely sensitive to that argument. Well, because he he was only in the Senate, you know, as as a voting member for a very brief period of time. And uh, I'm sure he was looking to, you know, ultimately where his career would lead. But survival is an instinct. It's human and it's political, too. And that's why people hold back. But I I tell you, the the most impressive people don't think twice about that, you know, and they'll they'll say as much. I don't care if this costs me the election. It's the right thing to do. That's what Paul Wellstone said in the well of the Senate as he cast that vote against the war in Iraq. And I went up to him in his reelection campaign. I said, I hope this doesn't hurt you, Paul. And he said, it's okay if it does. This is who I really am. This is what I believe. And I think people respect that, even if they disagree with your position. 
Well, Dick uh, Durbin, you're that kind of senator as well, and I'm proud to uh, be a constituent of yours and even more so to be grateful to be a friend of of, of yours. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.